The following sermon is from the Westminster Pulpit, extending the worship ministry of Westminster Presbyterian Church, Lancaster, Pennsylvania. We are a local congregation of the Presbyterian Church in America. Please contact us for permission before reproducing this message in any format. Please turn your Bible to Mark chapter 4. We continue in this gospel series. Mark Twain once said, It's not the parts of the Bible I don't understand that bother me, but the parts I do understand. The Bible is convicting, and nowhere more so than coming from the very mouth of Jesus himself. Jesus tells parables on many occasions. And they're more than just clever stories. They're like time bombs that an unsuspecting listener takes away only to have them blow up all their preconceived notions about who God is and who I am in relation to this God. This main parable, the parable of the sower at the beginning of our passage, is like the Rosetta Stone of parables. So the interpretation Jesus gives us is the key to interpreting and understanding most of the parables that we have from his mouth. If we as believers would flourish in God's kingdom, serving him in this pilgrim land, we must, it's vital that we understand these teachings of Jesus. So he and she who has ears to hear, let them hear God's word. Mark chapter 4. Again, Jesus began to teach beside the sea, and a very large crowd gathered about him so that he got into a boat and sat in it on the sea. And the whole crowd was beside the sea on the land, and he was teaching them many things and parables. And in his teaching, he said to them, Listen, behold, a sower went out to sow. And as he sowed, some seed fell along the path, and the birds came and devoured it. Other seed fell on rocky ground, where it did not have much soil, and immediately it sprang up, since it had no depth of soil. And when the sun rose, it was scorched, and since it had no root, it withered away. Other seed fell among thorns, and the thorns grew up and choked it, and it yielded no grain. And other seeds fell into good soil and produced grain, growing up and increasing and yielding thirtyfold and sixtyfold and hundredfold. And he said, he who has ears to hear, let him hear. And when he was alone, those around him with the twelve asked him about the parables. And he said to them, to you has been given the secret of the kingdom of God. But for those outside, everything is in parables, so that they may indeed see, but not perceive, and may indeed hear, but not understand, lest they should turn and be forgiven." And he said to them, Do you not understand this parable? How then will you understand all the parables? The sower sows the word. And these are the ones along the path where the word is sown when they hear. Satan immediately comes and takes away the word that is sown in them. And these are the ones sown on rocky ground, the ones who, 
when they hear the word, immediately receive it with joy. And they have no root in themselves, but endure for a while. Then, when tribulation or persecution arises on account of the word, immediately they fall away. And others are the ones sown among thorns. They are those who hear the word, but the cares of the world and the deceitfulness of riches and desires for other things enter in and choke the word, and it proves unfruitful. But those that were sown on the good soil are the ones who hear the word and accept it and bear fruit thirtyfold and sixtyfold and a hundredfold. And he said to them, Is a lamp brought in to be put under a basket or under a bed and not on a stand? For nothing is hidden except to be made manifest, nor is anything secret except to come to light. If anyone has ears to hear... Let him hear. And he said to them, Pay attention to what you hear. With the measure you measure it, use, it would measure to you, and still more will be added to you. For to one who has, more will be given. And from the one who has not, even what he has will be taken away. And he said, The kingdom of God is as if a man should scatter seed on the ground, that he sleeps and rises night and day, and the seed sprouts and grows. He knows not how. The earth produces by itself, first the blade, then the ear, then the full grain in the ear. But when the grain is ripe at once, he puts in the sickle because the harvest has come. And he said, with what can we compare the kingdom of God? Or what parable shall we use for it? It is like a grain of mustard seed, which, when sown on the ground, is the smallest of all the seeds on earth. Yet when it is sown, it grows up and becomes larger than all the garden plants. And puts out large branches so that birds of the air can make nest in its shade. With many such parables he spoke the word to them, as they were able to hear it. He did not speak to them without a parable, but privately to his own disciples. He explained everything. This is God's holy and inspired word. Let's pray. Father, we pray that you might give us ears to hear that you might give us eyes to see, that we might understand and embrace the teaching of your word. We pray that you would bless the reading and preaching of your word. As we pray in Jesus' name, amen. A couple of years ago, I helped a, one of the teachers of one of my children by gathering acorns over here near the south uh, carport entrance to the church. Uh, they were using acorns for a, a class craft, and uh, the squirrels were not very happy with me, but I did clean up a part of the driveway of the church, and I gave uh, some students some of, the, some of nature's tools for learning. I marvel how a tiny acorn, when planted in the ground and the conditions are just right with sunlight and rainfall, matures into a mighty oak tree. Everything necessary is right there in that little nut and seed form, a nut small enough for a squirrel to eat, yet having the potential to grow into a home for many families of squirrels and other animals. The kingdom of God is like an acorn that begins small but then grows gradually into something magnificent. The gospel first appears in seed form in Genesis chapter 3. After the passage Dr. Rogers preached on this morning, and then is revealed 
over millennia until the coming of Christ the Lord. Likewise, the gospel of the kingdom takes root in the believer's heart and matures and grows into robust living faith. Jesus teaches us about the kingdom using parables. You'll recall that this chapter follows on the heels of growing opposition to Jesus' ministry, coming from the scribes and the Pharisees and even Jesus' own family members. And Jesus is responding to this growing hostility of unbelief increasingly with cryptic stories that both reveal and conceal his identity and his purpose. But only the closest of Jesus' followers will receive a full explanation as to their meaning. Parables come with a warning. A warning against the stubbornness of unbelief, which will meet eventually the very wrath of God. But for those who are humble at heart, who have ears that are open to the word, these parables bring understanding and comfort to those who believe. And yes, their eyes will be open to the things of God's kingdom. So tonight we want to consider, why did Jesus teach in parables? And then go on to understand, what is the kingdom of God like? And then by way of application, how can we live well in God's kingdom? And how can we pray that God's kingdom would come, that his will would be done on earth as it is in heaven? Well, firstly, the word parable means to set alongside of, to make a comparison. Now, Jesus didn't invent parables. Uh, You recall that Nathan the prophet used a parable to convict David of his great sin of adultery and murder, the story of the rich man, the poor man, and the little ewe lamb, just enough to hook David to convict him of his grievous sin. Parables act like a mirror. They show us our hearts in light of God's word. Parables are the word of God in seed form. They reveal the truth about the kingdom and the truth of who we truly are. But as I have already said, parables also conceal. There were many people coming to Jesus at this time only to want a meal or maybe witness a miracle or align with his anti-establishment agenda. And of course, there were others who had more devious motives. The scribes and the Pharisees sought to trap him in his teachings, perhaps to expose him to his followers, to find some chargeable offense that they could accuse him of and bring him to trial. It's ironic that at times, Jesus' enemies understood the parables better than his own followers did. But they did not bow to it. They closed their hearts to its meaning. But for those who committed themselves to Jesus, were given great understanding that would, uh, would reap abundant life. Well, Jesus responds to the request of his followers in uh, verses uh, 10 through and following, when they ask him to give the explanation of the parable of the sower. And in it, in verse 12 and following, Jesus quotes from Isaiah 6, a very pertinent, important passage of Isaiah's calling to to be a prophet, where he he witnesses uh, the seraphim ministering into the presence of God and God's holy temple. And it's there that Isaiah receives his commission from the Lord to preach judgment to a hard-hearted Israel. 
whose eyes would not see, whose ears would not hear, whose hearts would not understand, lest they repent and turn from their wicked ways. Dr. Greg Beale, a professor at Westminster Theological Seminary, makes a very strong case that whenever Scripture talks about God's people being blind or deaf or hardened, God's charging his people with the sin of idolatry of trading away the living God in favor of things of earth, things made in the very image of God. Israel was certainly guilty of making idols out of the gods of the nations, which promised them children, security, prosperity. In Jesus' day, his enemies made an idol of the temple, an idol of the very law of God to maintain power, to feel superior over others, to keep the Gentiles out. Like Athens in the book of Acts, chapter 17, we live in a nation that is filled with idols. And it's not merely a TV show. We worship the idols of power and fame, of sex, money, and security. We even have idols in our churches. There's the liberal churches that want to make religion respectable, to make it acceptable to the elites of our society, to conform with the times, to align with science and new morality. But even conservative churches can have idols in their zeal for morality to make legalistic rules, in their zeal for uh, evangelism, even being secret orientation to water down the word of God. We can be guilty of making idols of our great doctrine or our uh, control and order and even our worship and the way we do ministry, sometimes we can make into idols. Or we can fall prey to any number of idols of comfort and peace that are prevalent in our society. Worshiping idols is like someone suffering macular degeneration, where the eye pressure gets so strong it begins to creep and squeeze and deteriorate the optic nerve Many people take eye drops on a regular basis to to relieve the pressure in the eye, to protect the optic nerve, to keep the eye from going blind. Likewise, you and I need God's grace daily. We need the word on a daily basis to keep us from becoming blind, blinded by our idols. And the parables help us to see clearly, to focus our worship on the living God. So what is the kingdom of God like? Jesus helps us to understand, helps us to see the kingdom through these parables of the sower, the lamp, and the seeds. Well, the, the, sower, uh, the, the, the parable of the sower may be more aptly titled this, the, this parable of the soils because Jesus' point is that the condition of the person's heart is vital for receiving and responding to the word, for the word of God to take root in it. And in that time, a farmer, a planter, would would cast seed pretty liberally and then follow up with rows of of plowing to kind of push the seed into the soil. Uh, Not like neat rows that people, that farmers do today by plowing rows and then following up with the seed. Well, Jesus describes that this first patch, this first soil, was really a hardened path that, that trodden by foot and hoof traffic. And so the seed couldn't penetrate this uh, impervious surface, and consequently the birds would come along and eat up the seed. Jesus is saying that such people are dull, undiscerning, not interested 
in the word of truth, and they're easy prey to the wiles of Satan who steals what they do have, leaving them condemned before a holy God. The second soil is rocky. It represents the people who may respond joyfully, initially, to the word, but they have no root. This is the inch-deep, mile-wide Christianity that characterizes much of American Christianity. It lacks depth. I had friends in high school, friends in college who were rocky soil, who responded for a while, who showed interest, who even demonstrated zeal for a season, but then got hardened by temptation and walked away saying no thanks to following Christ. They had little grounding. This third kind of soil involves the weeds or or the, the thorns that come up. And Jesus says these represent the cares of the world, the deceitfulness of riches, the desire for things, things that money can buy. 1 John 2.16 has a a similar three-part warning against loving the world, the desires of the flesh, the desires of the eyes, and the pride of life, pride of possessions. Such weeds choke out the word. As you know, and as you care for your lawn, you can can chop at the weeds, but uh, unless you pull them up by the roots or use something like Roundup, the weeds will just come right back. Actually, the best prevention to keep weeds out of your lawn is not only use a weed killer, but to feed your lawn. You need healthy grass that fills up the gaps and the spaces to keep the weeds from penetrating and getting in. And the same is true for our souls. We need to feed our souls with the Word of God. And this leads, of course, to the fourth case, the fourth type of soil, the, the good soil that receives the seed. Such as the person who hears the word and accepts it. He has ears to hear and eyes to see by the grace of God revealed to him. I believe that the the seed thrown along the path reminds all of us of our need to pray. We know people that are like the well-trodden path, who are hardened to the word of truth. And no amount of arguing will ever convince them. You cannot change his or her heart. It could be a loved one. It could be a neighbor, a friend, a child, a parent. But God can change them. And we must plea our case before our God and Father to soften their hearts, to make that hard soil receptive to the word of truth. I believe that the the seed that falls along the rocky soil reminds us of the importance of discipleship. You know, these last two months in August and September, remember this drought we had without rain? Well, I was negligent with my lawn, as was my next-door neighbor, and we had a lot of dead grass. And a a few weeks ago, I took out the rake, and I'm raking up the dead grass. I'm kind of working the soil. I spread seed. Well, my neighbor went the extra step. He rented the aerator to go in and plug up the holes and, and, and work up the soil and spread the seed. And he'll probably have a much better result uh, than I will. People need discipleship. They, they need help working the soil. They need, it needs preparation, it needs teaching and, and training and investment. And... Uh, uh, I've just learned that oftentimes, you know, hit-and-run evangelism doesn't work. 
Uh, People don't come into the kingdom quickly. They need teaching. People need training. They need discipleship. And this is a great teaching church, just for bringing people and teaching. But one of the things I think sometimes we're missing is the mentoring, the coming alongside of that is involved with discipleship to help people mature. So I, I remind you of that, that, that people need a lot of encouragement and teaching and mentoring uh, to mature in their discipleship. Well, what about uh, the seed that's thrown among the weeds and, and the tares and the thorns? I believe that this soil reminds us of our need for fellowship, to, to be guarded and thoughtful about who we spend time with, about helping our children, helping young believers make good decisions about who they associate with. You know, who influences your thinking? Who are you allowing a voice into your thought life, into your passions, your desires? Who are you listening to? Because there are so many voices in our culture today that say, follow me. But there's only one who is worthy of our allegiance, who says, follow me, and we drop everything, and we follow the Lord Jesus Christ. You know, I think we can also apply this parable to various regions of the world. It's like you know, the, the hard path, it's like secular Europe, like Canada, like parts, growing secular parts of the United States, our, sometimes our, our universities and our, our academies and other places in our, in our culture, where it seems like the seed has no chance to penetrate. But God can reawaken Europe. In fact, there's signs that he is doing that even now through the refugee crisis. And yet there are other parts of the world that are like the rocky soil where the, the gospel is spreading pretty quickly, that, that converts are sprouting up uh, in response to the gospel, but there's also persecution, there's hardship, there's the oppression of a government or the threat of terrorism that will test those who are true or not. And these regions of the world desperately need, need discipleship. China, India, parts of Africa. And what are we doing to help equip them and disciple them and, and mature the teachers and the pastors and the leaders of these small fledgling churches that are growing like wildflower but, but don't have a lot of depth? But you know, just as Satan attacks those soils, those regions, with the heat and the sun of persecution, I believe in some measure here in our own culture that uh, Satan, he afflicts us with the weeds and the thorns. So what, what, you know, we're not experiencing persecution, at least not yet. But we do live in a very materialistic society that, that choke, chokes us like weeds. It chokes us with the weeds of just obsession over health, financial security, personal happiness that Dr. Rogers mentioned this morning, comfort, success, pleasures. And my question for you tonight is, are you choking? Do you have weeds and thorns in your life that are choking the life out of the word? What needs to be cut? What needs to be uprooted? What needs to be killed? What needs to be laid before the throne of grace? Where do you need to ask God to dislodge weeds in your life? I think we all have temptations. We all have struggles. And there's things that are choking us, refusing to let us breathe. But they must be killed. But it's not just putting away the weeds. We must learn to feed on God's word. That it might mature and grow and sprout and flourish and bear much fruit in our hearts. 
Well, Jesus also offers several more shorter parables that give us further insights into the kingdom of God. He says the kingdom of God is like a lamp. Well, what's the purpose of a lamp? It's to give light so that you can see, light up a dark room. John chapter 1 says that men love darkness because their deeds were evil. They suppress the truth. Satan is the great deceiver who wants to keep people in the dark. Jesus is the true light who gives light to everyone. He came to his own and his own did not receive him. This parable says that everything that is hidden will be made manifest. All secrets will come to light. And that's, that's very assuring. In a culture like ours where there's a lot of deceit, where conspiracies abound, judgment is coming like an investigative reporter. And all deceivers will be found and prosecuted. But this also means that our lives are an open book before God. Nothing is hidden before the scrutiny of God. We live in a culture that loves its privacy. But the kingdom of God will not come privately. It comes publicly. And Jesus pauses here in verse 23 with another warning. He who has an ear to hear, let him hear. Because a great public event of the kingdom of God is advancing. And my question, my challenge to you and myself tonight is, does your public life match your private life? Does it have integrity? I would say that my years of high school before I converted, I was a hypocrite. I was a pretender. I wanted to be known as a Christian, but was not living like a Christian until I got confronted and converted. And then I had integrity. And, and even many of us are struggling to preserve that integrity. I want my public life, my private life, to be, be a match. And so if that's a struggle for you, my urgence to you is to, to be real, to come clean, to ask God for his grace to help you walk in the light, to live by the truth, to open your eyes. You might see and follow the Lord. Jesus says the kingdom of God is also like a measuring stick. It's like scales weighing in the balance. You know, the last remaining sin in our culture is judging. You shall not judge is the favorite command of many people in our culture, but we all do it. And Jesus says to stop it, to let him be the judge. And yes, we need to make good judgments. But Jesus means here to guard against the tendency to be self-righteous, to constantly make comparisons of always trying to measure up and demand that others measure up to our own expectations. This is a kingdom of love and acceptance where we point people to the one who measured up for us. The only one who was weighed in the balance and not found wanting, the rest of us were left with nothing. But Jesus sets the scale straight for us. In another parable, he reminds us, if you want to help your brother take his speck out of his eye, take your log out first. We need to see clearly before we can help others. And we can only see if we're humble. If we let God take the scales off of our eyes that we might see rightly and see others the way God sees them in need of a Savior. The little mini parable in verse 25 reminds us that the kingdom of God is very binary. It's like computer code. It's like either in or out. It's like a woman. She's either pregnant or she's not pregnant. We either have the seed of faith or we don't. And the one with genuine faith in Christ, even if it's as small as a seed, 
will abound and bear much fruit. But the one lacking in real faith, even if he has tasted something of the kingdom, he will be taken away. He will lose all privileges and be cast out into utter darkness. Jesus moves on to give two seed parables. The first speaks of God's power. In contrast to human effort, the farmer spreads a seed, then he takes his rest, but the seed continues to grow whether he's awake or asleep. He knows not how it grows and matures. The farmer does his part, but then he trusts God to do his part. Likewise, the kingdom grows as we sow, but we trust God to bring the fruit from our labor. And then this second, in this second seed parable, we see that the kingdom advances through weakness, through smallness. God's power made perfect through weakness. The kingdom is like a mustard seed, the smallest of the garden seeds, but grows into the greatest of the garden plants. A reminder here not to despise the small, humble beginnings of God's advancing kingdom. So how do we live well? How do we live well and flourish in God's kingdom? Well, first thing is that we need to live by, live by faith, not by sight. Just as the farmer trusts the seed, the, the doctor trusts the body to heal itself as he sets it right, the child trusts his parent. You know, we live in a culture that's always demanding proof, show me. We have a God who has proven himself to us over and over and over, and he is worthy and deserving of our faith and our loyalty. And our faith will flourish as we trust him, making us resilient in adversity. Remember that God has a purpose, a purpose of good, of not for harm for us, as we learn to abide in Christ. Secondly, living in God's kingdom means living for the long term. The kingdom of God is one of delayed gratification. You know, we live in a culture that's in a big hurry to get to nowhere. We want the quick fix. We want God to burst in on the scenes with both barrels blazing like a crime fighter or a superhero. But the kingdom of God advances slowly, sometimes in an onerous kind of way. But we have to learn by faith. We have to learn to see, have, take the long view and to not live for self, but for him who for our sake died and was raised again. And so thirdly, kingdom living means living in weakness, not by our own human strength. We have a culture that values power. We hate admitting weakness. We want to assert ourselves, to demand our rights, but Jesus did none of that. He submitted himself. He trusted to the one who judges justly. It was Jesus who appeared weak as a failure before the Romans and the Jews, whose own disciples shuddered in horror and shrank back in despair. But his power was made manifest in weakness, triumphing over sin and death. And because of what Christ accomplished for us on the cross, you and I can admit weakness. We can confess our sin. We can repent. We can forgive. And like Paul, we can boast all the more gladly in our weaknesses of the power of Christ. They rest upon us. So how do we pray? How can we pray for God's kingdom to come, for God's will to be done on earth as it is in heaven? Well, three ways to pray. Pray institutionally. 
The church needs prayer. We need to pray for revival, friends. I'm convinced that with all the, all the, the carrying on with the, with the election next month and all this stuff, the real problem is the church. The real problem is the people of God not being the people of God. Pray for revival. Pray for, for the preaching of God's word. That the idiots that won't preach the word will get out of the pulpit and those that will be faithful to God's word will get in it. We need to pray for preaching. We need to pray for evangelism. We need to pray for repentance. We need to pray for us and others in churches to remember that, that sin is not what is out there. Sin is what is in here. And judgment and repentance begins with the house of God. Secondly, we need to pray personally. And we need to pray that the kingdom would come to me, the kingdom would come to my spouse, my children, my loved ones, my family, to pray that the kingdom would come to the hearts of all the people that I'm in relationship with. Stop praying for God to fix people. But, but pray for your loved ones to become Christ-like. And as you pray, guess what will happen? It, it will reveal your false loves. Because oftentimes we pray and we act for mere convenience to get what's easier for ourselves. Sometimes we're scared to pray for others in this way because it may require something of us. We, we see the need for change in our loved ones, and as we're praying for them to change, God says, hey, you need to change. You need to lo- learn to love this difficult person. And that's hard. And that's the advancement of the kingdom of God as we learn to die to self, as we learn to love people in the likeness of Christ. That God would come and transform us in the midst of our most difficult relationships. Thirdly, I think kingdom prayer means praying for our culture. We have a lot of problems. Okay, well, there's just a lot of problems with a rejection of truth, deception, injustice, oppression, uh, integrity problems, transparency problems. And sometimes we can get cynical. And we don't, we just, oh, we throw up our hands and we don't pray. We need to pray for these things. We need to pray that God's kingdom would come into our school systems, into local government, in, into, the, uh, into the workplace, that, that, that God would bring truth and righteousness and transparency and humility and forgiveness and mercy and kindness to restore dignity, to restore integrity, to restore work ethic. These are bold prayers. And if we're willing to see God's kingdom advance, we need to be earnest in seeking and praying for such things. Well, our culture oftentimes says, seeing is believing. And those are, that's wise advice, especially when someone's trying to sell you a bill of goods. But the kingdom of God says, believing is seeing. When we believe, we begin to see. When we trust, we begin to bear fruit. Believing that the kingdom of God is like a sower. It's like a field. It's like the soil. It's like a lamp. It's like a set of scales. The kingdom of God is like a seed growing. And we need to believe that ever so small, it will grow, and it will grow and it will mature, and it will transform. And then we need to believe in the power of God's kingdom advancing in us, in our church, in our community, in our world. You know, ours is not a, a blind faith. It is a faith that reveals sight. 
is a faith that becomes sight as we identify with the Lord our God who's ushering for the kingdom of truth and righteousness. Invite him. Plead with him. Trust him. Beg him to come. To bring his kingdom of truth and righteousness. And may we long together for that great and glorious day when we will enter into his eternal joy in the presence of our living God. Let us pray. Thank you, Father, that you have established your kingdom and it is advancing with great power and great glory, though yet sometimes hidden from our sight. Give us faith. Help us to believe and see and trust that you are at work in our midst, in our own lives, and the lives of those around us. Equip us to live well in your kingdom, to pray well for your kingdom come this week. I ask in Jesus' name. Amen.